Thank you for being in the house of the Lord this evening. As you remain standing, we do want to go to the word of the Lord. I have a lot to say, so I'll get right in it. The book of Colossians chapter 2. If you remember, we are moving through the book of Colossians. And we'll read verses 17 through 18, and then we'll just continue from there. Amen. We're going to have a great time in the Holy Ghost tonight. Brother Lloyd Talbert will be preaching our main service, and I know that he's going to come with a fresh word from the Lord. I've had people wonder before. You never wondered to me, but you probably wondered out loud to somebody else as to why I don't always announce when there's a guest speaker. Well, here's why. Because I was an evangelist. And there were times when I would be preaching at a church and I was supposed to finish on a Sunday or a Wednesday and people were already scheduling me and announcing me for the next service and the next place I was going. But the Lord kept moving and I felt led to stay where I was at. And then I upset some pastors because they wanted me to come because they had been promoting it. And so the reason I don't, especially when it's evangelist, it's different if it's a guest speaker coming that's a pastor, but because if that evangelist can't make it, I don't want to have been promoting him and then him have to feel guilty because I did so. So I just don't announce it, and if they show up, thank the Lord. If they don't, you never knew anyhow. Amen. Verse 17, Bible says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility in worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Amen. Lord bless you. You may be seated. Just by way of reminder, in case you have missed some of the teachings, this is my third time to dig into the Word of the Lord in Colossians, and we're trying to finish up chapter 2, and then we'll, we'll step into chapter 3. But Paul was dealing with a church at Colossae that had taken pretty much a mixture of what they liked from different religions and combined it into one religion. And... Paul was trying to set the record straight concerning the Godhead and who Christ is. Thus, perhaps the foundational scriptures of Colossians is Colossians 2 and 9, and verses 9 and 10, which sets straight that the, all the fullness of the Godhead is in Jesus Christ bodily, and we are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. So we'll continue with verse 17. Paul says, let no man beguile you of your reward. The word beguile occurs nowhere else, or actually the, the Greek word for beguile occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. It, it's a word that was employed with reference to the distribution of prizes at the Grecian games and means to give the prize against anyone or to deprive of the palm. 
So we could say that it means to deprive of a due reward. And the sense here is that they were to be on their guard lest their reward, which is the crown of victory, should be wrestled from them by the arts and the cunningness of others. In other words, don't let anybody beguile you or steal your reward. That would be done if they should be persuaded to turn back or to falter in the race. The only way that you can hold on to the prize or secure the prize was to hold on in the race which they then were running. So Paul says there's going to be people coming, and they are cunning, they are crafty, and they will try to deceive you, and in doing so, they will literally steal away your reward, which is the crown of life. Verse 19, and not holding the head, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. The head, capital H, refers to deity. Speaking of Christ, everything is connected to the head. In the physical sense, everything else in the body may be fine. Your arms, your limbs, all your organs. But if it's not connected to the head, because the head is what sends the signals to the rest of the body. And so what Paul is saying to saying is this, the head which, from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. If you remove Christ from the equation, then the body dies. Doesn't matter how good you can do it. Doesn't matter how much talent you've got. All the nourishment for the body comes from the head. He is the head of all things. In the physical body, the rest of the body can be fine. But we have to have the head. So it is in the spirit. Let's read 20 through 23. And I will be moving speedily, so I want to finish chapter 3 today. It says, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and with worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh." The Gentiles were weighing themselves down with ritualistic ordinances created by the Jews. You've got to keep in mind that Old Testament written in Hebrew, New Testament was written in Greek. Then you, you have the era of the Gentiles, which were strangers and aliens uh, to the commonwealth of Israel. And they were now coming into a new dispensation whereby everything that was taught to the Jews was going to be fulfilled through the embodiment of Jesus Christ. But God is always about progression, not digression. And so he's not going to have someone go from one dispensation that he progressed to, which was the New Testament church, and have them go back to the law because that would be going backwards. And he's wanting to go forward. And so he's saying, Okay, Paul's saying you're measuring, you're Gentiles, and now you're trying to fall in line with the, what the Jews are doing. I preached for some Jews one time. 
in California. And she was a figure skater. He was a professional judo. They came to the Lord in their 20s. She, if I believe correctly, she is actually from the uh, Levitical priesthood. Her lineage is traced back to the Levitical priesthood. But we got to talking, and, and I've never been around Jews, bloodline Jews. How many has been around bloodline Jews? That's what I thought. I'm not the only one. There's not many in Catahoula Parish unless they're incognito. But they started talking to me about pork and eating pork. And <laughs> I like to eat. And if you're like me, going to eat with Jews is a different ball game than what we eat because they're kosher. And they still, this is what blew my mind. They still adhere to all the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And I was sitting there the whole time throughout the revival. Didn't get to eat any bacon while I was there. Didn't get to eat any pork while I was there. All these things that we eat. Didn't go eat no catfish while I was there. And I was going, why in the world? I was talking to the Lord. And I couldn't get over how they were New Testament, filled with the Holy Ghost, and still living according to the Jewish laws, dietary laws. And I felt like I was wrong and that I was harming my body by eating what I was eating. And for about probably a good 45 minutes, I was thinking about doing the dietary law of the Old Testament. Not long, but I thought about it. That list of what I'd have to give up, I'm already picky. And that what I'd have to give up, I'd really be picky. But it began to talk to the Lord, and, and it God just kind of laid it all out there to me. And the Lord said, well, they're not doing it unto salvation. That's the Old Testament. Old Testament, they had to do it unto salvation. Jews. Because there was no Holy Ghost. Now, here's Jews that have the Holy Ghost. And there were Jews on the day of Pentecost. That was all that got the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost was Jews. And the big struggle was when the Gentiles got the Holy Ghost, that's us, pork eaters here. We got the Holy Ghost. That's where the problem came. It's because you had the ones that were still doing it under the law, the dietary law, and then you had all the other ones and they had this quarrel about who was going to have, who, who's bringing pork at the potluck dinner, okay? Who gets to eat the bacon? And they were pointing fingers at each other. But what Paul was trying to say is, hey, it's no longer unto salvation. You can do it out of ritual. You can do it out of allegiance to your bloodline. But it is no longer a salvation issue. And he was trying to solve the dilemma and the quarrel. And I realized, these I don't have to feel bad if I eat bacon. I don't have to feel bad if I eat catfish. I'm not a Jew. I'm not doing it for salvation. 
They're doing it out of their lineage and their bloodline. But it is no longer a salvation issue if they eat a meatball with pork. I mean, he told me one time, one time I, I ate a piece of sausage and I threw up because it had pork in it. My goodness, brother, I hate that. But Paul was trying to solve this quarrel that was occurring between the the, the Jews and the Gentiles over, he said, he said, you're weighing yourself down with ritualistic ordinances. You're, you're Gentiles and you're trying to live like Jews. You're trying to do what they did for salvation and you don't understand that this is a whole different dispensation. Let's jump to, let's jump to chapter 3 because Paul continues his dissertation. He says, if ye then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So he's saying that the old man is dead. That old Gentile is dead. That old Jew is dead. And now you got to get your eyes off of the things in the world and get your eyes on the things of God. Now he says where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. A lot of people will use this phrase at the right hand of God to try to defend that there's more than one God. Because if Christ is sitting on the throne, how can he also be seated at the right hand of God? But it is not a literal expression. It is a figurative expression denoting God's preeminence and the authority that he gave to Jesus Christ. What did Christ say? All power in heaven and earth is given unto me. It is a figurative, not a literal expression. There is only one throne. There's only one that's going to be seated on the throne, and that is Jesus Christ. This is further exemplified in Exodus 15 and 6 when it says, Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. Now, we know that God's a spirit. And so the Scripture is not saying that the right hand of God literally came down and dashed the enemy in pieces. It's figuratively. The authority of God is what is being expressed in Exodus 15 and 6. Verse number 2. He says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Habitually set your affection. It's a daily thing that you have to bring the carnal man into subjection and have the mind of Christ. That's why Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. We have to continually get our mind in line. Verse 3, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When he's saying you have died, he's saying your flesh, your carnal man has died. Now, the Bible says, you got to think about this with me. That it's appointed unto man once to die. 
Man's only going to die one time. And it's not speaking about the physical man. All right? Jesus said, He that liveth and believeth on me shall never die. So here's how it works. You can either die willingly or die whenever God takes you, but you're only going to die one time. Because if you surrender everything to Christ and repent of your sins and baptize in Jesus' name, fill with the Holy Ghost, and become born again, that was your death. Because if Jesus said, He that liveth and believeth on me shall never die, then whether when you cease breathing, that's not death. That's life. Or you can live your whole life and ignore Christ and ignore the call and experience true death, which is separation from God. But you're only going to die one time. One time. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Galatians 3 20 through 21 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Paul said, I die daily. You don't just surrender your will and your life to Christ once a year, occasionally. It's a continual effort. I've got to, I've got to put my flesh on the altar. I was thinking earlier, we were, I was in a church Easter play. I don't remember how many years ago it was. I don't think I, I wasn't married. Late teenager. And a buddy of mine was playing Jesus. And this is why I'm such a stickler for things being practiced. Because if it's going to go wrong, you want it to go wrong in practice, not in the real thing. And so I was a soldier. And, and I'll never forget it. We had the cross laid on the ground right here. And we went through the practice with the hammer, and he's, he's laid on the cross, and we're hammering on the cross. And the cross had a plate, not a, not a plate, like a stand, where you picked it up and dropped it in it, and, and it, he could hang on it. It was secure. Everything went great in practice. But sometime between practice and performance, someone had this bright idea. We don't want anybody to be seen helping support the cross. So they nailed a black curtain to the back of the cross. That way it would be nobody behind it and, you know, you could see it. That sounds great. Until we're in the middle of the service. And everybody, it's packed house. And we're nailing it. And in my mind, I'm going, this is not going to be good. I can see this. It's, this is going to be bad. And so we had to have guys help us. And we're trying to pick this cross up. Well, guess what's underneath the bottom of it? A black curtain. 
And so we go to shimmying that cross trying to get it up. And we get it up and we push too hard. And it's going straight. My pastor, everybody's sitting there. And Jesus is wide, wide open and he bails as it's going down. And we catch it. And I'm going to just go ahead and tell you in case you're wondering, you can never get a service back after that, after Jesus jumps off the cross. Over. And I got to thinking about that earlier. And it's like the Lord nudged me and said, that's not the only time people jump off the cross. They jump off it when there's something that comes up that they want to do. Things that they want to say. And then we want to jump back on it when it's convenient to live for God. The problem with a living sacrifice, like Paul talked about, is you still have your ability to do what you want to do. Paul says you've got to be crucified with Christ. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Your life that you have, the only way you have it is through Christ. Because the Bible says the thief cometh not but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus said, but I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. The only life that you can experience is life in Christ. And when Christ appears, those that are going to be caught away with him are the ones that have that life inside. Verse number four, I'm sorry, verse number five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, carnal, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. The word mortify is actually means put to death. So he talks about fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. Covetousness means an unsatisfied spirit. This is idolatry, which means me first. You know, there's a lot of people that put themselves first instead of Christ. And anything above Christ or before Christ becomes an idol. So if your money is first, it's an idol. If your hobby is first, it's an idol. And all of that is centered around a selfish spirit. You know what's gripping the land today is a spirit of discontent. Discontent. People are so discontent. Paul said that I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Verse number 6. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Cometh literally means God's wrath is continually falling on those who disobey. So Paul names the sensual sins in verse 5, but then he names the social sins in verse 8. And we tend to be shocked by the first category, but we overlook the second. But let's start at verse number 7. In the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them, but now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, Filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, 
and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So the words put off and put on refer to a person changing their clothes, exchanging the, gra- exchanging the grave clothes of sin for the resurrection robes of righteousness. But let's look at what he talks about, the social sins, anger. That's an attitude of resentment. Wrath, sudden outburst. Malice is an attitude of ill will towards someone. Blasphemy, which you can blaspheme people, not just God, is a speech that tears down another. Filthy communication, that's self-explanatory. Lying is a misrepresentation of the truth, even if the words are technically true. You could still, I've been with people before that I was with them when they were telling about a story, but they tweaked the story to make themselves look good. That's lying. That's lying. It doesn't matter if all the facts are there. If you still tweak it to make it come out a different way, that's lying. So we were formed in God's image. Then we were deformed by sin. But we could be transformed by the Holy Ghost if we are willing to be conformed to his image. But we have to put on Christ. Verse 11 where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free. But Christ is all and in all. Paul was saying, okay, it doesn't matter now what nation they're from, what language they speak, what kind of person they are. The blood of Christ, the spirit of Christ is the common denominator in everyone's life. So he said, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Because we have the privilege of having put off sin, we have the responsibility to put on the attributes that Paul mentioned. He uses the term bowels of mercies because the Greeks located in their mind, the deeper emotions in the intestinal area. We talk about our heart, but the Greeks, the greatest and deepest form of love come from their intestines. And so Paul said, bowels of mercy. In other words, the deepest parts of who you are, full of mercy. Mercy is not giving someone the consequences they deserve. we got to put that on. You know, what I've found out about people, is it's easy to have mercy on people that sin like you sin. But it's easy to cast judgment on people that sin different than you sin. But sin is sin. So you have mercy on all sin. All people. Mercy is not approval. 
It's not. God extends mercy but doesn't approve of what behavior and what happens. He extends mercy. Kindness, giving someone the blessing they do not deserve. Humility, not thinking poorly of oneself but thinking of others first. Meekness, which is not weakness but having one's power under control. Long-suffering or long-temper, the ability to, to delay reaction. Forbearance, to abstain from enforcing one's rights. Forgiveness, to cancel the debt of another who has wronged us. Paul said, if any man have a quarrel against any. You know, it blows your mind how many people are holding on to unforgiveness in a church towards each other. I remember one revival I was in. The Lord spoke to me before a service. I think it was a revival. It might have been just me preaching it. But anyhow, the Lord gave me a scripture and gave me a title. It was when the woman caught in the act of adultery, brought her to Jesus, and one by one they started dropping the stones. Y'all know the story. And I'm never, I don't think I've ever preached it, put down those stones. But anyhow, I don't know why I was preaching it. I went and I began to preach about a quarrel and about animosity. And I never preached that strong in a church about that. And I'm going, God, I don't have a clue. This is not what I want to preach. But evidently, you know what's going on more than I do. And wouldn't you know it, when I gave an altar call, Two men on the opposite side of the church met at the altar. And they got to hugging and squalling. And I went, oh, my word, something must have happened. Come to find out, the pastor told me, he said, Brother, I have been dealing with that for a long time over something petty that happened. And that was the day. That God said, all right, enough is enough. We need to deal with this. If you got a quarrel against somebody, whether they know it or they don't know it, you can make it right with that person. There's no sense in holding on to animosity and hard feelings, etc., because the only person that it hurts is you. You got to put on that forgiveness. Verse 15, let the peace of God. Rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. It says, let the word dwell in your life, feel at home, dwell among you in so much that it governs your relationships. And I want to say this, if you never read this word, then how can this word govern you? You got to read it. You got to read it. This is why I'm such a proponent of bringing your Bible to the house of God. You want to know why? I'm such a stickler on this. Because... People say, well, I've got my phone, my, my Bible on my phone. It's true. It's good. I'm glad. You can't gossip on this. 
You can't look at inappropriate stuff on this. You can't do all that stuff that you do on a phone. You can't do it with this. This is the epitome of purity. There's nothing in this. There's nothing in this that is impure. That's why we gotta have, we got to know this book. This book will govern every single thing that you do. Let it dwell. The Word leads to praise, worship, and singing. And if we will put it in our heart, it'll begin to be a fountain. It'll begin to be a spring. It'll bring forth life. Verse 17, I'm hurrying. Ten more minutes. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Whatever you do, do it all in His name. And if you do it, don't do it to be seen by men. You do it as unto the Lord. So Paul says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as it is fit in the Lord. Submission does not refer to inferiority, merely to rank. Okay, There's this feminist movement that's uprising where women want to be equal with men. And I'm not, I'm not hopping on that train today, okay? I'm just telling you this. There are things that God put in order that man can never reverse. There's, there's order. There's God. There's Christ. Same thing. Husband and wife. It's not saying one is better than the other. It is in God's eyes, it's spiritual authority. Headship is not dictatorship or lordship. It is loving leadership. Then he says, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. So Paul adds this caution, be not bitter against them. Because due to the male temperament and leadership role, a root of bitterness in a home poisons the marriage and gives Satan a foothold. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Of course, children are to obey their parents in all things, not just the things that they like. A child who doesn't learn to obey his parents is not likely to obey any authority. We got a generation of kids that they rebel against all authority, but I can tell you this, they probably rebel against their own parents. There's a, I remember hearing somebody tell a story years and years ago. Actually, it was Brother Poe that told the story. He, when his boy was young, he walked in there and his boy was turning on a game on one of those game systems, and the first thing that popped up, it said, challenge everything. And he looked at that and he said, turn that off. And poor, he didn't know what it was. But that little term, challenge everything, every time those kids turned that on, they were reminded, challenge your parents, challenge all your authority. You just challenge everything. And how many millions of kids, when they turned that game console on, saw that same thing go across that console? Subliminal. Subliminal. Do you realize how many, how many, well, never mind, because I'm probably the youngest one in here. Never mind. I, I remember I was born in 1983, and that was when MTV, 82, 83, was when MTV was really kicking off. And 
and it was all the worldly music. But I read a quote years later, just actually a few years ago, from the executives at MTV, and they said, we are after the minds of the kids because if you can get the kids, you'll get the future. Do you realize that that generation are now the ones being in elected to Congress and these different positions in governmental authority? And they're brainwashed. And we who have a little bit of sense about us are going, what is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. The world got to their minds when they were kids. And now you've got them protesting and Antifa, and you just start naming them, doing all these riots. That's that generation, the MTV generation, that has challenged everything all of their life, and they have no respect for authority. Parents who cannot discipline themselves cannot discipline their children. Parents who are not under authority themselves cannot exercise proper authority over others. I've seen young people when I was a youth pastor. That young person wasn't the problem. I knew they weren't the problem. You want to know who the problem was? Mom and dad. Because their parents were mavericks. They wouldn't submit themselves to the authority of a pastor. And therefore, they would not force their children to be submitted unto the authority of a youth pastor. And it wasn't the child's fault. It was the parents' fault because they had a rebellious spirit. And now parents are backslid, child's backslid. And I don't blame the child as much as I blame the parents. It says, fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. I've seen children fly off the handle, but it was their parents that provoked their anger. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. If you substitute the word, think of it like this. Substitute the word employee for servant and employer for master in the Bible, and you'll have a good modern-day application. The term eye service literally means sight labor, an employee that needs to constantly be watched to make sure they are doing their job. As men pleasers, literally man courting, an employee that is agreeable to their employer's face but otherwise behind his back. That's a modern-day breakdown of what this verse means. Verse 23, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, not unto men. Everything you do, as you stand with me, everything you do, whether you do it on your job, whether you do it at your house, whether you do it at the church, because we are children of the Lord, we do it unto the Lord. In other words, just as if God was sitting right here watching us perform whatever task we were doing, we should do it to the best of our ability because it glorifies God. You know what I've noticed in jobs? They don't expect people who are worldly 
They don't expect them to act a certain way. But you let someone live for God, work like someone that's working, that has a poor work ethic in the world, they'll leave the guy that living for the world. They won't mess with him about his poor work ethic. But you let somebody who's supposed to be living for God have a poor work ethic, and they'll harp on him. Why? Because they expect more out of him. They expect there to be a higher standard of conduct for that person who is living for the Lord or, or going to church. And I believe it's a poor representation of the kingdom for us to be slack and slothful. I'm not saying you can't have a rest day. I'm not saying there's not times you just need to unwind. But a slothful man is not pleasing unto the Lord. You just read the book of Proverbs and find out how God feels about slothfulness. We ought to do everything we can to bring glory to God in all things. Why? He says, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. What reward? The crown of life. The same thing Paul says, don't let someone beguile you or steal your reward from you. For ye serve the Lord Christ, but he that doeth wrong shall receive the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. Listen, God is not a respecter of persons, but he is a respecter of principle. And this book is filled with principles from beginning to end. And God, when it's time to give judgment, will judge based upon the principle, not upon the person. No one will be able to say, well, God, you don't know who I am. God, I come from such and such family and this and that. It doesn't matter. God is going to honor his word, but it's not going to be without first giving people opportunity to do what they know they should do. Amen. Let's lift our hands and thank the Lord for his word. Father, Thank you today for the bread of life, the meat of this word. I pray, Holy Ghost, that you would let it sink into someone's spirit. Let us keep you at the forefront of all things. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, when everyone said amen, amen. Lord bless you. Greet one another as you uh, begin to transition to our evening worship service.